0: Robert Fowler joined the Department of External Affairs in 1969 and worked in Paris and at the UN in New York. Beginning in 1980, he served as Foreign Policy Advisor to Prime Ministers Trudeau, Turner and Mulroney. In 1986, Mr. Fowler became Assistant Deputy Minister in the Department of National Defence and then served as Deputy Minister. He was Canada's longest-serving ambassador to the United Nations, following which he was named ambassador to Italy and also personal representative for Africa of Prime Ministers Gretchen, Martin, and Harper. Fowler retired from Canadian Public Service in 2006 and is a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. He was appointed an officer in the Order of Canada in 2011. He lives in Ottawa with his wife, Mary. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew.
0: I'd like to start with Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner mm. and read out I will Thomas Burnett's uh, a quote from his archeological philosophy and then just get you to respond to it. Sure. I can easily believe that there are more invisible than visible beings in the universe. But of their families, degrees, connections, distinctions and functions, who shall tell us how do they act? Where are they found? About such matters, the human mind has always circled without attaining knowledge. Yet I do not doubt that sometimes it is well for the soul to contemplate, as in a picture, the image of a larger and better world, lest the mind, habituated to the small concerns of daily life, limit itself too much and sink entirely into trivial thinking. But meanwhile, we must be on watch for the truth, avoiding extremes, so that we may distinguish certain from uncertain, day from night. So how in your time in hell, and we're here talking about A Season in Hell, the book that was published by Harper Collins about a year ago, and you are 130 days in the Sahara with the
1: Al-Qaeda. How did you determine night from day? I've got to say my attachment to this magnificent poem wasn't a particularly metaphysical reading. It was much more of a physical. Night and day in the desert is all too easy to distinguish. Night falls like a guillotine, and the sun pops up above the horizon, and you start... I guess, sorry, the point that, that yeah. he might be
0: making is the difference between the imagination and, yeah. and the real. I, I think
1: I was greatly afeared that I would lose the distinction between the real and something probably worse that would occur in my mind, or basically in more popular terms that I would lose my mind as a result of fear, as a result of the physical circumstances in which uh, Louis and I found ourselves in view of the appalling diets we had and because the thing would just go on and on and on and there would be no end and there would be no way to keep hold of reality.
0: Does it seem like a dream now? It seems... Yeah, sometimes it
1: does. It seems like another world, I guess, uh, like an experience I had in another time and place. And then something will happen that will bring it into stark. Focus. I mean, now, in this crazy day and age of ours, you can watch our our liberation in the middle of the Sahara Desert on the Internet. Uh, you can have a chat with my captor. I was talking to a journalist the other day who said, I, I talk to Omar one every day, would you like to talk to him? Um, and I said, no, I'd rather not, actually. But he's also on the Internet. I have lots of clips. I actually brought a few with me if you would like to see them. There's Omar. So it is very bizarre to me that these reminders of the reality of the whole thing are ever present. It's also, in a strange way, a little bit comforting to know that actually what I wrote wasn't a dream. Um, And the Omar you would hear in these video clips is very much the Omar that emerges out of those pages. Yeah, four years away now. We were, we were captured four years ago last week and released almost five months later. So it is a long time ago, and I did find those words written 200 years ago redolent of the experience and of the thoughts I was having at the time, absent the religious theme in that poem. Of course... Which is very strong. Well, instead of being
0: in a, the Antarctic, you were yeah. in the Sahara.
1: Yeah. And water was a, was a problem in both places, wasn't right. it? Exactly. And instead of, yes, being, I was in a sea of sand instead of simply a sea. But the, I found the parallels uh, remarkable. The
0: mariner has a, an urgent need to tell his story. He does. He stop us one and three yes those three are on the way to a wedding they're kind of impatient they're distracted Mm -hmm. maybe an unwilling audience Mm -hmm. how have you found your audience this modern canadian audience to your story not
1: nearly as unwilling as i would have thought there is a real interest in the story and and of course it's informed by events in the real world quite often when i'm asked nigel how i'm doing um, i say i'm doing great and so too is al-qaeda in the islamic maghreb they're doing great too right uh, they have captured the northern two-thirds of mali um, they have a country now according to the secretary general of the un foreign fighters are streaming into that country and omar told me time and again and he will tell people watching him on the internet that they have much broader objectives, and they're setting out to achieve those objectives, as I describe in the book. So I think Canadians are, A, interested in the story, but but they they too are reminded every day that the story is relevant, timely, immediate. It is all playing out. The question that comes
0: straight to mind is, what's the threat? And is the Harper government correct in uh, its focus on annihilating this threat, why should we be spending so much
1: and is it Mm. legitimate? Yeah, that's a big whole other issue which is pretty far away from from this book, or indeed this experience. But threats vary, and as you read out at the beginning of our discussion, um, I, I spent nine years in the Defence Department and I have a fair understanding of Canada's defence posture and um, why, and I'm, I'm out of date. I mean, I, I, I left uh, the Defence Department, good heavens, um, 18 years ago. But I don't think situations have changed that much. I think we would be naive in the extreme if we believed, along with Mr. Fukuyama, that we have reached the end of history and and that people um, have stopped posing threats to each other. My experience is quite the contrary. And and we will be in for a... sorry awakening if we go very far down that road. That said, the Cold War is over. Um, The major powers uh, do not seem likely to have a go at each other soon. There are people trying to make a big thing of the coming conflict with China, but I don't really see that as being very real at the moment. But there are certainly threats. I talk in the book a little bit about Sam Huntington's theory of clashing civilizations. Um and and I think I mentioned that I had dinner with Huntington in New York in the late nineties and found his thesis a little extreme and, and maybe a, a bit little bit dismissive little, about it. Maybe a yeah. little racist. But uh after this experience and having Got to know in one way or another these rather strange people uh, more than I ever thought I would or hope to. I, th- I think Huntington, at least insofar as the inevitability of a clash between extreme Islam and the West, it's not a clash between religions, but it is uh, a clash of values. And their values and our values are as different as possibly could be. They're the kind of fatalist, and we are free will? They, yes, they are. God, But is they would never, of course, put it in those terms. No. All, all, uh, God has a
0: plan for us all. God and it has doesn't a
1: matter what we do. Th- that's
0: absolutely right. And we, on the that's other exactly hand, right. thinking yeah. people, that's an
1: anathema to us. Yes, it is, and particularly to me. And uh, as somebody with no religion, I, f- I find it very hard to think that, Something has all been hammered out out there, and I'm playing uh, an automatic part in somebody else's play. Um, I just don't see life that way, but these guys do. These guys see themselves as pawns of, of, of their stern unforgiving, unloving um, and vengeful God and they're playing out his part they're fighting his battle they're engaged in his war and they will necessarily be victorious because it is his war you say that they look upon time in a completely different way than we do yes, I I thought that was perhaps the biggest difference between them and us that um, time is so immediate for us Uh, we've gone past the 24 hour news cycle it's now hour to hour, or even on occasion, minute to minute. Uh, We can't wait for anything. We can't wait to mature anything from fine wine to friendships. We want it now, and it doesn't have to be perfect. We just want it now. Whereas these guys know that victory will be theirs, and God will ordain that victory in his own time. And they're willing to give everything. Well, they won't be there whenever that is because they're going to die in his war and because they die fighting a a jihad, they, unlike the other 99, they will go to paradise. They will pass through the the eye of the needle. And that Uh, kind of enemy it reminds me of the kamikazes. What what can you do? Actually, it reminds me of the crusaders. Uh, What can you do? They would say to me again and again and again, uh, we fight to die. And you fight to go home to your wives and kids. How can we lose? And they were literally deathly serious about their commitment to dying in their cause. I mean, one guy, I describe it in the book, strips off his AK from his shoulder, thrusts the gun in my face vertically, and says, kill me now, I'm ready for paradise. And he was absolutely serious. He, of course, cannot kill himself, but I, as an infidel enemy, um, could dispatch him to paradise. And he wanted to sit beside those rivers of milk and honey. And if he was among the most fortunate in paradise, he might gaze upon the face of God. And it would be so beautiful that he wouldn't blink in 40 years. And they believe all this absolutely. That really
0: returns me to that question. This this sounds to me like a fighting force
1: that's frightening. Well, they're certainly frightening in their discipline, morale, and commitment. And those are big big items they're they're not enormously frightening in their their capacities or their weaponry or um, uh, I mean you know they're but should the west exterminate them or not well in so far as they cannot be diverted from their path uh, and in so far as they are committed to achieving what they state is their objective, which is not only God's will, but uh, the uh, imposition of their views on everybody else, then yes, they should be they should be stopped. And you're not going to talk them out of it. Now you talked about defense a moment ago. I mean, this isn't a job for F-35s. You know. Uh, no, I, so I guess
0: the, again, though that's the kind of question is, you know, how do we do this? Is it a uh, it's sort of a, a seal team operation that deals with them on their own ground and uh well, and are they you know as soon as they get drones are we in uh, in trouble that way
1: well, they're not going to get drones soon uh, they have liberated an absolutely obscene quantity of weapons from Gaddafi's armories. And there is all kinds of very specific evidence to that effect and included in those weapons are some quite sophisticated weapons, including apparently 20,000 Iglas, which is the Russian equivalent of a Stinger anti-air missile, good to 11,000 feet. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, they're going to have to use a few of them learning how they work, Um, but it's not that complicated. Uh, And they have equipped themselves with all kinds of um, armored vehicles and uh, light and medium weapons and quantities of ammunition that are off the scale, including very heavy artillery rounds and mortar rounds, uh, a few of which in the trunk of a car make a hell of a
0: big bomb. Um, And I suppose, and again this gets to one of the the questions that, uh, that comes up in the book, and that is if they continue to uh capture uh and take hostages and continue to get money from that yeah. who's to say that they won't be able to get weapons that could arm
1: yeah there are more America that are well i i think uh yes but uh uh again i'm I'm not sure where where we want to go with this conversation because we can get very quickly into a kind of a broad geostrategic discussion mm-hmm. um i I am personally extremely w- worried not very much about Afghanistan returning to being Afghanistan, which by the way it will it will do quite soon, yeah but I am sorely worried about al Qaeda getting hold of Pakistani nukes, say. Um, they wouldn't make them, <laughs> but no. they could get them. And and the difference between them and everybody else is that they would use them. That there's no because there's no compunction. Uh, there's no and there's no mutual assured destruction. Yeah. I mean, they're not. Uh, there's no balance. You know, you nuke me, I nuke you. So let's not do it. Um, yeah. uh, they 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 would be quite happy to to go with the great fireball themselves, yeah. Yeah. and, and they're not worried about anything you would do in return. Uh, so if they could get extreme weapons, they would use them. Now, I think the likelihood of my, my captors in, in the Sahara Desert getting hold of such weapons is very low. Yeah. But they have friends whose likelihood is much higher. Um, I'm, I'm not, per, I'm not particularly worried about them getting hold of gee whiz weapons I, I am very worried about them with the weaponry that is all too available to them creating absolute havoc uh, in the upper half of Africa uh, impacting appallingly the lives of half a billion people creating a humanitarian disaster the like of which we have not seen before which would require us to act. Uh, I mean, you know, we see tiny little microcosms in in Darfur or the Congo or, uh, you know, from time to time with massive famines in Ethiopia or wherever else. But those are nothing compared to what I'm talking about. And that's their stated intention. I mean, their intention is to turn the Sahel region, which effectively means, though not precisely means, effectively means this 7,800-kilometer band from the workshop in Mauritania on the Atlantic to Mogadishu uh, in Somalia on the Indian Ocean, and they want to turn that band—it's about—it varies between one and two thousand kilometers deep—into mm-hmm. one vast, chaotic, anarchic Somalia, and they believe that in that chaos and misery. Uh, their jihad will be nurtured and nourished, and uh, they will be able to achieve God's purpose. And they believe that, and that's their objective. That's what they're trying to do. They feel, I agree with them, that they've been quite successful so far. Mm -hmm. And they want to be more successful. And there is not one African government in that band that I just mentioned that isn't terrified of these guys and what they represent. First of all, they know those governments that these guys hate them, and and they are the near enemy. They are We are the far enemy, you and I, but the near enemy is very much in their sights. They hate government, they hate democracy, they hate freedom, they hate liberty, they hate equality, they hate equal rights, they hate equal rights between the sexes. They hate the United States, they hate the UN. Yes, that, that's kind of separate level of things, but yes, they see the UN as this uh, creature of the great powers, which um, uh, has one of its principal objectives, the undermining of young Muslim minds, uh, distracting them from God's will and the true faith, and yes, they hate the UN for that. As they hate most NGOs, certainly any NGO with the vaguest veil of religious purpose. Competitive. Yes, competitive religion. The yes. Yeah.
0: yes, the enemy, yes, yes, the enemy, yes. Toward the end of the book, you talk about being a grumpy old man. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But connected with that is an important message, I think. I no longer have time any time for political correctness and circumlocution. I'm appalled by the extent to which our contemporary lives are attention disordered, informed by valueless priorities and affected by posturing, visionless politicians, by shallow media and by our pervasive ignorance of history and the world around
1: us. That's a grumpy old man, right? Yeah, it
0: is. (laughs) You went through this ordeal. Mm -hmm. It changed you.
1: Not a great deal.
0: You suggest that it didn't a great deal, and mm. you still get get angry with people that
1: uh, you know don't know how to drive. And, yeah, uh, I do. That's knee jerkedness. What I'm, I guess, I'm trying to say is, is on the one hand, you know, this was not Saul on the road to Damascus. Um, no, God wasn't in my foxhole, and uh, I I did not emerge from this. A changed man with a new understanding of life. My understanding, no. of, my understanding of life is pretty much the same, but I am very much aware that I don't have that much life left, and I'm not going to waste it by being politically correct and nice. No, you, you call the uh, the British uh, High Commissioner. <laughs> some very
0: well. Just, there's it, some harsh terms that you use yes, there I, that are not too, not diplomatic yes, at all. I, I met him after that book was published. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's not funny what they
1: were doing. They were being hypocritical about paying ransom. Totally. I guess what I'm really saying is when I now, in whatever time I have left, uh, A, I'm going to relish it. Yeah. And B, I'm going to say what I think. And that's not what diplomats do. Sometimes it's what they do, but they usually do it in private. I mean, diplomats, I, having been one for 38 years, um, I have said some very hard things to other Countries, but I do it in private. I don't usually, with a couple of exceptions, seek to do it to embarrass them publicly, unless I, that's the only way to achieve what you want to achieve. And I've done some of that too. But I guess now, I mean, when when Mr. Ignatieff asked me to go down to Montreal and and give a speech on Africa and my view of Canadian foreign policy, I did and added in my view of the Liberal Party. So.
0: And the RCMP, you've also taken a good, strong yeah,
1: swipe. And out. I will be happy to do that anytime
0: any time because uh, of the way uh, they treated your wife. Correct.
1: So I guess all I'm saying is I'm not going to retire quietly to my log cabin in the country, <laughs> Dylan re- Thomas. Re- read fine books, yes. <laughs> right. But I will rage. You're right. Yeah.
0: Is that what you recommend then? You know, if you were much younger, would you do you
1: regret the fact that you didn't? Not the least. And I'm not. Okay. I'm not in this book recommending anything. This is me telling, mm-hmm. telling a reader, a willing reader, my wedding guest, what I think about what I experienced. I'm not offering prescriptions to anybody. Okay. Speaking of prescriptions and mental health, right.
0: it was quite striking the way that you talked about a, a constant cloud of fear mm-hmm. hanging over you while you were in captivity. And this image of being uh, taken into a tent in front of a camera and beheaded. Mm -hmm. and I consider that likely. You weren't hopeless, but you weren't terribly optimistic. Correct. That's exactly right. Now, I've heard mental illness, depression, clinical depression, described in exactly the same way. That there's a firing squad in front of you. An actual firing squad well, that that same fear that you're gonna die. you're in a depth of anxiety and stress that that is the same as as yours was in real life. And so I guess I'm getting again back to this this idea of a reality that's imposed by the real world, an imagined reality
1: that's that's just as scary. No, my real world scenario was all too vivid and all too real but that's how a depressed person feels too I could show you in 20 seconds the video of Daniel Pearl being beheaded in Karachi in 2002 and, and half a million people have watched it and um, it's all too real um, there, there is, this is no figment of my imagination uh, and unfortunately there are a number of others that you could watch in the same way so this wasn't, you know, Winston Churchill's black dog. This was my rather cold geostrategic analysis of what was likely to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I've done for a living for almost 40 years. And Louis had done much the same thing, and, and we had each other to bounce these different uh, scenarios off. I there guess I there just... were very few of the scenarios, or at least very few of the... Of the reasonable scenarios that that weren't made of real world events, uh, they were not imaginings of a of a, of a troubled mind. The yeah. mind was troubled. Well, actually, quite. The, yeah, I guess what yeah. I'm getting at is quite the contrary. Is that your
0: mind is such a stalwart against this terror that's almost hard to comprehend? It's you know here we are sitting in
1: mm-hmm. Ottawa, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. were mm-hmm.
0: faced with you know, the possibility of getting beheaded
1: Mm -hmm. every day. That Mm -hmm. must have been... And it was always, that's the point, it was always there. So when you, I think I say very early in the book, and I remember it, I remember little bits of this very, very clearly. On our way up into the desert at at the camp that we called uh, the Board of Directors, and my back was damaged, and we were three days into it, and so I hadn't been drinking water, and I was dehydrated, and we hadn't been fed much. And I was very depressed and sort of desperate. And I remember falling in and out of sleep or, or fitful dozing. Yeah, you couldn't sleep and, for the, to start with the right. longest time. Yeah. Or go yeah. to the, to, you know, take a crap. Exactly. As I was not sleeping, I would still doze and I would have nightmares. And I remember waking up thinking as I began conscious again of what was around me that this was much worse than any of the nightmares I had had. And I wanted to get back into the nightmares. I wanted to get back into sleep, into because you know, you know in the in the midst of the nightmare, you know you're having a nightmare. You know it's not really real. And I wanted to go back there. That was much safer territory than I was in. And I'm not saying that hmm. that you
0: were depressed. I, quite the opposite. I'm saying you were... Well, you I was were, sort of depressed, but... You survived. And so one question is, how did you do it in the face of this terror? How did you How did you get through it? You I know you did regular routine. There, there are mechanical things yes.
1: in answer. So, you know, we exercise because I believe that there were significant threats... To our bodies and our minds and, and and to our bodies beyond the part of having our bodies divided um, there were all kinds of things that could hurt us physically and there were various things that could hurt us mentally and and if one went the other would likely follow I believed so you had to look after both so it was like both. a
0: team almost yeah. like a
1: buddy Oh, no, very much with Louis. I mean the, the greatest thing we had going for us was each other and mm-hmm. and my fear was that we would be separated? We were for four days, but I could even then I could see him, you know, over there. That was Hassan. Uh, uh, that was Hassan's grilling both of you interrogation. Yeah. Yes, but each time we moved anywhere, they would load us into separate trucks, and I never knew if that meant I would see Louis again. So we were very, and I, and I think I think our captors knew that. In other words, I think our captors decided they didn't want blubbering hostages uh, who had lost their reason they they wanted negotiable um, uh, good. assets yeah, exactly good. yeah they did so i think they thought that our being together was probably a good hostage maintenance program you've survived an awful ordeal
0: how can others when they face trauma like this ideally you bond with ideally you've got someone else that you can yeah. love if you
1: want to put it in those terms Um, sorry those would not be the terms I'd use but somebody who can who can share the experience with you and you can manage each other's ups and downs and that was key friendship yes certainly there was friendship and we have become very fast friends but but it was more than that it was more than friendship it was survival I mean, we had rules. Our our fourth rule was no diving down rabbit holes, pits of despair. If one did, the other was required to pull that person out by hook or by crook with insult, pantomime, amusement, uh, whatever it took. Anything uh, but. To get them because, you know, the fear was you just spiral and keep going down. And, of course, every now and then we found ourselves in the same pit and that was very scary and very dangerous and we both kind of realized that I throughout I kind of felt I was kept sane in part because I had a responsibility to look after Louis and he felt the same way about me and, I mean I couldn't I, 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 it, it would be self-indulgent to wallow in that pit of despair because I had a job to do. I had to look after Louis, and you couldn't let him down. No, no exactly. So I think both of us felt that, and that was extremely useful in, in terms of what others can learn. I mean, there are courses on this stuff. You know, they soldier, but, but not very many them. people have actually lived it. No, not very many people have lived it and tested it. And the people who give these courses are quite interested in learning what we did. Uh, the U.N. gave us brilliant debriefings over over 48 hours, four debriefers, and, and within 48 hours after the briefing, you know, they produced a little plasticized card that they gave to the 50,000 U.N. employees providing the sort of lessons learned from us. You know, um, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's a mean, survival guide. Yeah. You know, one of the things, I mean, the, the key relationship, of course, was with our captors. Yeah, and you know what was the right posture vis-a-vis our captors? I, and some, I mean, I worry that young soldiers who are brought up in a very macho environment and and where toughness is is everything and and fear is not acknowledged, that they would be too macho, too too courageous, too strutting too yeah. well, well, too aggressive. Frankly, you know, um, and that's not a posture that would work with these guys. At least it just would not. They would respond by hurting you or killing you. Well, they could do that, or 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 just by waiting until the moment was best to kill you, uh, sort of uh, appropriate for that. Uh, or they might beat you a few times along the way. But but, but you talk about there's
0: also the, they had a respect for you because you it's an interesting line, isn't but it? That it, it, it?
1: And yet, I mean, on the other side of the macho formula, I mean, it would have been equally dangerous to have been. Uh, submissive and obsequious and broken. Well, you know. and and uh, turn
0: going to their religion. You know, they were the yeah, proselytizing. I, weren't yeah, they?
1: I'm not. I you know, I'm never. I, I I still think about you know the pros and cons of going to their religion. I think I, I say in the book that if ever I had thought that would be a useful thing, yeah. I, w- I would have been happy to do it. And, Pragmatic. Yeah. And I don't. I mean, even Louis, who's who is a religious person and with strong Catholic mm-hmm. beliefs. He knew his God would understand whatever was required, but for me, the whole issue was, would it be useful and I never believed that it would be, but I acknowledged that in the abstract, there might come a time when it could be useful at least theoretically, but it was important to maintain a relationship with them, which was firm, somewhat confident, somewhat proud but but sympathetic to their point of view, as in uh, sympathetic to their religious. Views, inquiring, respectful, and uh, not the cardboard cutout Westerner inhabitant of Solomon Gomorrah that they so like to see us being. In the same way that they are, frankly, not the two-dimensional cardboard cutout terrorist that the war on terror produces the uh, non-thinking, so, yeah, exactly, rabid, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, they do think; they think in a pretty weird way, from my perspective, but they do think, and they well, abuse. So, especially this
0: one character, Hassan, you'd spoken about mm-hmm. how how intensely curious he was. Yes, he was very
1: intellectually curious, very smart guy. But uh, so you know, I was finding that juste milieu, you know, that that middle ground where you're not. You're not exciting in them all the, uh, the passions that hate us. And on the other hand, are not um, inviting them to hate us more by um, by being sniveling cretins. So, finding that right posture was important. And we did it, I think, sort of naturally. But at the end of the day, I mean, was it of enormous use? Well, it was more of more use to us than to them. Mm-hmm. And it was more use because it gave us a plan, it gave us an objective, it gave us a frame of reference. But at the end, I mean, at the end of those 130 days, I mean, there is not one of them that wouldn't have sawed our head off. I mean, so we hadn't wormed our way into their hearts and consciousness so that they actually, you know, wanted to go and play tennis with us, you know. Um, so it was impossible with that kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely. The gulf between us was so enormous, it was impossible. Yeah. And, and yes, I mean, if they decided for whatever reason, as six weeks later they did decide to cut off the head of Edwin Dyer, you know, they would have done that. And, and there isn't one of them that would have given it enormous thought. I just couldn't believe. Too. Yeah. I'm speaking with uh, Robert
0: Fowler, who's the author of A Season in Hell, My 130 Days in the Sahara with Al Qaeda. I couldn't believe that that these young men weren't horny, and that's yeah. what you s- you yeah. said that in the book. It's yeah. just, well, it's it's almost against human nature, isn't yeah. it? I kind of thought and so. We're here to procreate as much as anything.
1: I kind of thought so. so. What what what's that all about? Well, uh, they were focused. I sometimes I'm surprised that priests aren't horny, Um, and and I guess well they are they are look what they do you know repressing that exactly look how it yeah yeah yeah, but exactly but then there are lots of priests who get past that yeah so anyway these guys seemed I mean they left their families and their children and their friends and they were launched on a on a one way street to paradise. And they were going to die in the struggle, and that's where they were headed. And they would be as useful in the struggle as they could be. And they weren't. There weren't a lot of distractions. But the huge irony
0: mm. is that what what's there? All these virgins. Yeah, you know, it's like just doesn't add up. I mean, if
1: that's what they're going to die for, but they're not going to die for. That. I mean, we in the West, we love this virgin thing. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, because it is. It is picaresque, you know, it is, mm. it, it is titillating. Uh, although I did find one thing that I hadn't known before from these guys, that they, these virgins can't see each mm. other. Which is intriguing, but you know, I heard them mention that once they they were they were much more interested in enjoying the presence of God. It's nowhere and near as pleasurable though. Yeah, I, for them. It was well. Again, I, it was. I look, and what do I know? We didn't sit around talking about how horny they were. No. So so um, maybe they were, and I just didn't see it. Right. Um, now you know you kind of saw everything um, in you know wide out there in the desert, but. Maybe I just didn't see it, but they did not seem to be, you know, kind of one by one disappearing for a few days and then coming back. With relieved uh, looks on their faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were No, that did not seem to be their thing. Now, they didn't seem to need it. They would be happy enough sitting there in the blinding sun chanting their Quranic verses. Well, I guess by mentioning it, I found that rather strange. It wasn't like other soldiers I have hung around with.
0: Yeah. Well, and as you say too, uh, in, you know, on the same page, it's, uh, there's a lack of interest in material things, it total, seems. Total, total, word. So how completely
1: yeah. opposite from mm-hmm. this Western culture? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that they get a lot of money from ransoms, and apparently they do, and they get lots of money from all kinds of other things. We focus on Western hostages and ransoms, but we don't follow all the little banks they knock over or the pharmacist in some small town that they kidnap for a couple of thousand bucks or the donations from the diaspora that pour in um for the jihadi cause. I mean, they have sources of income, A., And B, their needs are very, very simple. We're not talking about fifty million dollar hunks of equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bullets for an AK-47. In many places in Africa today, you can buy an AK for ten bucks. Bullets cost usually a little bit more uh, in in quantity, but their expenses in in, you know they they've got tires, they've got spare parts, they've got bags of rice. This is not expensive stuff. A million bucks goes a long way. Do you, do you think they
0: get pleasure from like shooting these guns? I think they get pleasure in because it brings in, them closer in, in to being God's instrument. Right? Yes, right. I think they do,
1: um, as you know, many soldiers do. I mean, mm-hmm. not God's purpose necessarily, but then... Well, I, I mean, there, there's a certain professionalism, you know, that probably gives them some some pleasure, but they wrap it up in this sort of mystical, you know, with with angels in raiments of white with flashing sabers and um, fighting with them against the infidel.
0: That's what the stars uh, are, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Shooting stars. Shooting are, stars, are, yeah. shooting stars, exactly, are, yeah. Just uh, winding down, why do you think there is this such visceral hatred
1: Well, then we're getting into a whole bunch of sort of historical determinism. I make the parallel in the book that I don't think there's a hell of a lot of difference between the crusader storming the walls of Jerusalem in 1099, screaming Deus le and then wading through blood up to their thighs as they slaughter every man, woman, and child in the city, which most historians agree occurred. And the the latter-day jihadi donning the martyr's vest and entering the marketplace screaming Alu akbar and pulling the trigger. All kinds of appalling things have been done in the name of religion, Um, and these guys are a recent example of that. Uh, They're certainly not the first, and they won't be the last. Yeah, but you
0: can't help, and you know, i just bringing us back around to that circle of, of mental illness. You know, you look at hmm. what happened in Newtown. Uh, that yes. was a sick mind. Oh, by God, it was, yes. Now, yeah. you know, if there is this kind of atrocity taking place... I did not... You, you don't
1: call it atrocity, you know? Well, no, I might call it an atrocity, but I don't I don't call it the sick mind. I know that sounds strange. That guy, he in, was sick. that guy knew in, no, in my frame of reference, he was seriously sick. But if Al Qaeda
0: I mean, mowed let, down a bunch of kindergarten kids, well, well let me. Let what, me what's well, look, the they difference. did.
1: They did. I mean, there were there was a kindergarten in the World Trade Center. Among those three thousand okay. people killed, there were a whole bunch of little kids. There were, and yes, there was an FBI headquarters, and I think maybe a CIA office, and and a whole bunch of bankers and insurance brokers and but they're not sick because it because they're doing the work of god sorry sorry the issue is i think whether they're sick in, in their minds rather than in in other words this i don't know anything about this guy in Newtown i i found the whole story just so appalling i can hardly even pay any attention to it or watch it. Six and seven year old kids, uh, I, I mean it is just so, apply. I have a bunch of grandchildren that age and it, it just is unconscionable. But but this guy was the product of our society and he was rotten in some manner. Evil. If you want yeah, to put it in I'm religious used, terms. Kind of use any nasty word you like and I will agree with it uh, for, the, for this guy. But my captors, the jihadis, the people who believe they are doing God's will in their frame of reference they are not sick this guy in our frame of reference is sick
0: right but killing
1: kindergarten children I mean they they at one point they, they said to me we were there when that captain I forget his name landed the plane on the Hudson River they wouldn't let us listen to the news so they would tell us selected bits of news but they would also have their spin on it and of course they knew the plane had been brought down by birds. I'm happy to know that they didn't know they were Canadian geese. Uh, but, but, but nevertheless, of course, but in their frame of reference, this was God's will and God's instrument. God had sent birds into the engines of these planes in order to destroy yet another gaggle of infidels. And they believed that it is sick to kill little children, okay?
0: It's, can we say that that's objectively true, regardless of what the motivation
1: might be? Look, I, look, I, I cannot answer for these guys. I mean, I just, yeah. I don't know enough about them to answer for these guys, but um, they, just like we, clearly accept the concept of collateral damage. I mean, I mean, however appalling that can be, yeah. In every war, particularly as weapons have become more sophisticated, there is collateral damage, including little children. I mean, sorry, the Israelis killed a whole bunch of kids in Gaza recently. Now, you and, know, are, are, and you talk about are they the afraid. same as this guy at Newtown? In my view, no. And Because uh, it's an act of war. Yes, yes. And, and I think it's an act of war. A. And these guys, I think, I don't know. I don't know. and I I can't you can't put me in their minds I just don't know I I, I spent a few months with them but I don't pretend to know their minds but I don't think I don't think they have have or would launch an operation aimed exclusively at seven and six and seven year old children it would be as you say uh, just a part of the the act of war I think but you know if children were in the building or the building next door or whatever hey I mean that that happens in fact, the West has no
0: right to stand on any pedestal. You talk about uh, Guantanamo and, yeah. and Abu Ghraib. Um, I do.
1: We have lost is, the moral high
0: ground, as far as I'm yes, concerned. You, yes, you, with, with the intimate and, and almost palpable proof of our side's methodically applied, officially sanctioned, and so casually administered barbarity. Yes, it's a pretty great world we live in. Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody's ever accused me of being an optimist.
0: Do we want to leave it there, or do we want to? Uh, That's up to you. Do we, to, do we want
1: to be a bit more optimistic? <laughs> do you, do you, uh, no, no, I'm not. There, there are there are a few people since I got out through speakers bureaus, etc., have asked me to come and speak and, uh, and offer some kind of inspiration. Uh, to people, I'm saying, I'm not your guy to do that. Um, I'm not. I'm not an inspirational speaker. Um, I'm not going to um, join the happy slappy crowd and um, end up on a on a high note or an uplifting theme. I mean, it is what it is, and, and that's the best I can do.
0: Well, and in fact, that's how our wedding guest ends up. Uh, he emerges a sadder and a wiser, wiser man. man.
1: Yes, maybe. Yes,
0: that's correct. Well, thanks very much for... Uh,
1: not a bit. It was sorry. a real pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it enormously. Thank you.
0: Robert Fowler is the author of A Season in Hell, My 130 Days in the Sahara with Al-Qaeda, published in Canada by uh, Harper Collins.
1: Same in the States? Not, I do not have an American... I do not have a publisher anywhere else.
0: Well, you should. Thank you anyone who's concerned about this world of ours would benefit from reading this uh, unputdownable book. It's, uh, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thanks again.